And so, Lord, now I ask that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts to receive your word and to learn and to grow and to be more conformed to the image of your Son. And we ask that you would do this not only through us, but those listening over the Internet. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you guys, before we get started, Bob just came back from his trip where he saw Jürgen Moltmann and the others of the Emerging Church. And I thought it would be fun to have him give a, a blurb on what he found out and, uh, and so forth. So why don't you go ahead, Bob? Okay. Yeah, there will be a full discussion of this sometime in October. Chris Roseboro, the same guy who was with me when we met Rick Warren, was also with me at the Emergent Conference. He's going to be in town, and I'm going to have him come, and the two of us will present a full hour wow. Okay, about what we saw and heard and experienced in Chicago, actually at Libertyville, at this emergent, it's, it was put on by the emergent village. The statement I want to make right now is that what we saw and heard proved that everything I said in my book was dead on accurate. Okay? Hmm. The book did tell what is really going on with the emergent. Wow, and we'll give you details at a later time. Okay? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thanks, Bob. It'll be fun to hear. You know, it's a great way to get into heresy is to actually talk to the people themselves, get it from the horse's mouth rather than secondhand information. That's the way to do it. Say, if any of you missed last week was the introduction to Colossians, I recommend that you pull up Bob's article. He has two articles on the Colossian heresy. Three. Is there three? Oh, well, I'm missing out. <laughs> um, I only read two of them, but I know they're really good, and it gets into the same issues but on a deeper level of what the Colossian heresy was about. So I recommend that you pull those up. You can get them on the Critical Issues Commentary website, and so I would recommend that highly. So today we're going to get into the first eight verses, and the first eight verses really, and I, guys, I only have seven slides, so even I should be able to get through this, right? Hopefully. It's about Paul's Thanksgiving to the Colossians, or for the Colossians, he was giving thanks to God for them. And I want you to think about the darkness. I talked to Keith about this, and it was an interesting application. The darkness of the pagan world that both Paul lived in and also the Colossians would have made the, the very fact that they became saints and believers in the living God a very sweet thing to Paul. And you and I as well are living in a very pagan world, and I think there's some application that we're going to learn this morning, namely the love of the saints, that we should love one another just as Christ has commanded us. But with that, there's a lot to glean from these verses, so I'm going to get started right away. Okay, here's Colossians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Remember a few weeks ago I gave a message on the book of Titus, and I talked about apostolic authority. Do you guys all recall that? And I talked about the threefold criteria one had to fulfill in order to be an apostle. Namely, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection and you had to be with Christ from the beginning. Okay, that's the first criteria. You also did the miraculous by signs and wonders if you were an apostle demonstrating that you were in fact a personal spokesman for God. And the third criteria is that you were called. Okay, because remember in 1 Corinthians 15, there was over 500 brethren that saw the resurrected Christ. And perhaps many of them would have been with Christ during his earthly ministry. So you had to be called, because obviously not all of them were apostles. Now, if you missed that message, let me just say this. This is an easy way to bring this up in a conversation. Here's why I bring this up. 
when you guys are out witnessing, I can't tell you how many people I run into uh, wherever I go that are confused about who an apostle is and who an apostle isn't. And do you guys, if everybody's heard of the Romans Road, you can help lead people to salvation. You can convict them of their sins under the Romans Road, and then you lead them to the forgiveness of sins through the gospel. Well, there's a John Road that I like to use to prove who's an apostle and who isn't. And it starts in John 13:20. You may want to jot this one down. And that's the one where Jesus says, whoever receives the one whom I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the Father who sent me. Okay, well, there Jesus is telling us that those who he sends are, in fact, endowed with his very authority. Does that make sense? Okay, think about John 14:26. It says, he, that's the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. That's an important verse because here the Holy Spirit is promised to teach these believers who are with Christ from the beginning all of his words. There weren't, there weren't some that were going to be left out, but all of the teaching. Okay, so now we went from John 13.20 to 14.26. Now all you have to remember is John 15.26 and then continue into 15.27 where um, Jesus says, You will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, so remember that's our first criteria. The apostles had to be with Christ from the beginning. Okay, does that make sense? Now, if you had to throw in another one is Acts 1, 22 through 23, where he talks about the necessity of someone to fulfill or fill in Judas's spot to be a witness to the resurrection. Okay, but those three passages in John really show us who can and can't be an apostle. Okay, so I just wanted to reiterate that. Now, the other thing I want to point out, and I like to get into possible contradictions in the scriptures because there are no contradictions in the scriptures. And I want to show you the passages people might throw back at you that would say, well, wait a minute, we have a seemingly contradiction to that threefold criteria that I just gave you. And we see this, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 2.6. Now, remember, 1 Thessalonians, Paul starts this letter by saying, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He's talking about three men. Okay? So when he uses the we, he's talking about these men. All right? So listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.6. He says, Nor did we, talking about Silas and Timothy as well as himself, seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. So now it seems as if Paul is saying that these men are apostles with him. You see what I'm saying? Now, wait a minute. Was Timothy and Silas with Christ from the beginning? Okay. So now, wait a minute. What about that criteria that Jesus lays out, laid out in the beginning? You were with me from the beginning. Okay. Does the criteria that I laid out really hold up? Well, let me give you three possibilities the way to interpret this passage, and I'll show you that our criteria does, in fact, hold out. The first is perhaps the apostles are used here generically as messengers. Remember last week we introduced the idea, and I'm sure you've been introduced to this before, the idea of a semantic range. The idea that a term can be used in a broad spectrum of ways, right? You and I would use the term, it's cool outside, right? Meaning the temperature is low, right? And that's, that happens a lot in Minnesota. Or we might use the term cool, you'll hear kids say, well, that was cool, right? 
well, we're using the term cool in a different way. It's a semantic range. Okay. Well, here perhaps apostles is being used generally or generically as a messenger. These men were messengers with him. But now, what gives us a clue? And, and by the way, raise your hand, give a shout-out if you have any ideas. What would be a clue here that more than likely he's not referring to just generic messengers? Does anybody have any ideas just by looking at the passage? Yeah, Keith. The authority, the authority. exactly. Yep, you, you're, you hit it. And here's why. What Paul is actually asserting, the phrase, by the way, in the Greek is en bare ene. In other words, he was literally saying we could throw out our weightiness. Okay, well, what weightiness is he talking about? Certainly a mere messenger does not hold the weightiness that the office of the apostle does hold. You, you follow what I'm saying? So the very fact that he's saying that he can throw out his weightiness, he must be talking about the weightiness of the office of, being, of the apostle. Okay, so for instance, somebody want to look up a passage, uh, Patrick, just because I know your name and I'm quick off the draw here, would you mind reading for us 1 Corinthians 9 and maybe go through from verses 3 to 6 and we'll just stop there. Oh, thanks, Bob. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Yeah, so here what the apostle is saying is he has the right to even charge the church. Now, he doesn't even, remember, he doesn't even use his apostolic authority to take money from them because he wants to be, uh, now he has the, the right to do it and the authority to do it, but he doesn't so that they can't claim that he was just trying to gain money from that congregation, right? But the point is, is he has the authority to, in fact, earn money from his works and he has the authority of an apostle himself so the, the term again is the weightiness so again I, I don't think that that's probably a likely scenario so we can rule this first option out he's not talking about a mere messenger the second option here is that timothy and silas were in fact apostles but now notice in our verse notice in this passage paul deliberately sets apart himself paul an apostle of jesus christ by the will of God and, okay, there's a chi there, so he's separating Timothy from himself. And he does that same thing, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, he has the same thing. Okay, so the idea here is that Timothy is not wrapped into who Paul is, namely an apostle. So Paul is distance, distancing his apostleship from Timothy, you follow what I'm saying? The other item is that Silas, for instance, in Acts 15.32, he's called a prophet, okay? But nowhere is he called an apostle, all right? So more than likely, I don't think Paul is really referring to these men as apostles in the sense that they held the apostolic office like Paul, all right? Here's a third option. I think is, this is the correct one. Paul is using the royal we, and I use this term. Sometimes it's called the epistolatory we. I use royal we because I just couldn't think of a better term. <laughs> so it's probably not a technically correct usage of the term, but here's what I mean by that, is Paul is linking these other men with his weightiness. It's Paul's weightiness that carries the authority, but because they are with him, they're included in his ministry. It would be that idea. We see examples of this. In fact, Brian, do you mind reading a passage here? And I'm just going to lay this out. Let me find my passage. It's out of, oh yeah, here, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. Let's read that. And you're going to see this idea of Paul incorporating 
other people into his ministry and using the term us. So 2 Corinthians 2.2. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2.2. And then somebody else, Joanne, would you mind reading 2 Thessalonians 3.17 after he's done? So listen to this, you guys. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2.2. That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. As if from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So here's the idea that, remember, who is it that actually wrote the letters to the Thessalonians, the, the people in Thessalonica? It's Paul, right? We never have anybody other than Paul. But yet he's wrapping in these other men into his authority as if from us. And the term there, epistolase, has to do with a letter that would be something that we'd probably have in our Bible. In other words, this isn't just a generic letter. This would probably be on the order of Scripture. So anyway, the point is, is he's wrapping these men into his authority. Okay? And then our other passage, 2 Thessalonians 3.17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Yeah. So now notice there he said he's showing that, in fact, as an apostle, he has a certain type of signature. We're not sure why. Maybe he had bad eyes. I don't know if anybody has a theory of what the thorn in the flesh was. I don't know if you guys ever developed that. But the point is, is Paul had his own type of penmanship, his own signature, and he's distinguishing his letter from those who may be unsettling those in Thessalonica that, in fact, the day of the Lord has come. So in other words, there he's showing, yeah, Keith. seems he's just using that to prevent counterfeits. Exactly. Yep. This is just like a seal. This is what my signature looks like. Right. And if you get a letter from me that doesn't have this, it's not from me. Right. And so, but notice there, Paul is using himself. It's his letter, right? But earlier on, we saw him wrap other people into the authority that he brought. Okay. Yeah. When we, t- when we went through Second Corinthians in this class, we noticed Paul intermittently talking in the singular and the plural. <laughs> You know, he goes back and forth between I and we. Yeah. And you have the same thing here. Same concept, yeah. yeah. The real authority is Paul, but sometimes he uses a broader word, yeah. which we still do today in English. I do that yeah. when I write my articles. I'll say we. Right. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the point being, you guys, is I think our categories still hold. Paul is just wrapping these people into his apostolic authority. So the point is, there is no contradiction. So if anybody were to throw this passage at you, you would be prepared. Okay, there's no contradiction in the scriptures. Okay, all right, now let's go on to verse 2. Paul continues, he says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now I want to talk about this term saints because there's four major ideas that are wrapped into the hagias. Namely, they are God's elect, they are believers, they are set apart, which has really a twofold meaning, and then they are eternally secure, or the term I like better is they persevere. The reason why I want to talk about the definition of a saint is this stands into stark contrast to what Catholicism teaches as being a saint, namely that you have an exemplary life, and years later a council or a see would vote on whether or not your life was worthy of being a saint. Okay? That is not the definition of a saint according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, you are in these four categories. First and foremost, you're elect. God talks about his people in Deuteronomy 7. He says, not because, Israel, you are the largest of the nations, but because you are the smallest. 
I chose you, and because of the oath that I swore to your forefathers. In other words, God is being consistent with his loving kindness, his chesed, his covenant love that he bestowed upon his people. And so what he's saying is merely because I chose you, that's why I chose you. Okay, they were his elect. They were his called out ones. They were his called to be his saints. Somebody, let's see, i got to start knowing names here. Um, James. James, would you read 1 Corinthians 1-2? 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints with all those in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord and ours. Their Lord and ours. Amen. There you see the term called to be saints. Remember, there's two types of calling. There's the generic calling in the scriptures. God calls all people to repentance. Everyone is to repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1.15. But then there's the unique calling, the effectual calling, those that, the calling of God that, in fact, leads to salvation. It's a salvific call, and that's the call that James just read about, the call to be saints. It only applies to the elect. They are called out from the world, and, in fact, they will be believers. And that's where I get to the number two Romans 4.16 clearly states that we are saved apart from anything that we do by faith. Okay? So how do you become a saint? Well, by faith in Christ, according to Romans 4.16. And, of course, Paul there is building on Abraham's faith. Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he literally had a change of position. When Abraham believed God, he went from a wretched sinner who whose... Um, the, the wrath of God was upon, okay, and he became justified. He became a person now who in God's eyes was in fact holy because of the imputed righteousness of Christ who would one day come and provide atonement. Well, Paul picks up on that in Romans 4 and he says it's the same today. So salvation has always been by faith alone, in Messiah alone, all by grace alone. Okay. Now, the reason why I have Jude 1.3 here is think about the logic Jude 1.3, Jude admonishes, he says, I exhort you, brethren, to always contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. So think of the logic. Romans 4.16 says in order to become a saint, it's only by faith. Well, then Jude 1.3 must be talking about that same faith, and it's once for all handed down to the saints. So how do you become a saint? Well, you have that faith, the faith that Abraham did, the faith that Paul's talking about. Okay? So we see that they're believers set apart. Somebody want to read Hebrews 2.11? Sam, he, go ahead. He, Hebrews 2.11? Yeah. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Yeah, so this is the idea that we're going to be called brethren with Christ who sanctifies us. So Jesus is the ultimate sanctifier in the Holy Spirit. The full Trinity is involved with that. But sanctification, you guys, is really a twofold act. Okay, it's a process, but it's also an act. In a sense, sanctified means being set apart. For what purposes? Well, the purpose of the Lord. Okay, so in that sense, it's wrapped into election, the effectual call, and salvation, but then it's also a process. It's a process by which we, as sitting under the means of grace, become conformed to the image of Christ. Okay, so think of sanctification as, in one sense, being set apart forever. You're elect. You're the chosen of God. But in another sense, this is a process, okay? And so you can tell people, bear with me, I'm not sanctified yet, okay? I'm in the process, right? Okay? So it's both and. And then they're eternally secure. And the term that I like better is persevere. 
Why do I like that term better? Well, eternal security is correct. Once we're saved, we're always saved. But it neglects to point out the very important fact that those who are saved, in fact, will persevere to the end. Exactly. They will always have saving faith. All right? In John 10, 27 through 29, remember Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. I and my Father are one. Right? So the idea is that, in fact, in the Greek, it's the most emphatic construction. Literally, you could say it this way. They shall never at any time in the future have the ability of perishing. They can't. Why? Because Christ is maintaining us. So this idea of the elect and people persevering, it's not you doing it. It's God through you. Okay? Yeah. I I said one time to somebody that didn't like that doctrine, what in the world kind of eternal life is temporary? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That would be an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp. I think that there's a a concept, though, from God's perspective, when he knows who's elect and he's called, that's certain in his eyes. From from my perspective, I don't see things through his eyes specifically. So from my perspective, there's risks. Hmm. And I don't, if, if once I claim I'm eternally secure because I say so, Wow. there's every likelihood that I'm not eternally secure because it's based on me. That's right. So from God's perspective, I would say there's an eternal security. Wow. From my perspective, I'm commanded to obey, I'm commanded to love, and I'm commanded to believe. That's right. And inasmuch as God holds me, I have faith that he's capable of holding me and he, no one will snatch me out of his hand. But it's, a, it's, a, it's not designed to let me do whatever I want to do because once I start doing whatever I want to do, it's proof that I'm not. Romans 6.1, shall we go on sinning that may grace may abound, may it never be. You're, you're talking, and I love that distinction. The distinction I think Keith is making is be, the difference between eternal presumption and eternal security. There are many people who will act like the devil day after day after day and they think, well, I was saved. I walked down the aisle 22 years ago, right? That's eternal presumption. But we are to persevere. And we'll talk about a little bit more about this in the application. But that's exactly right. Remember the distinction between eternal presumption and eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. Let me just keep moving along here. Uh, and I'm going to come back to that idea in our application. I think that's important. So let me talk about this idea of the brethren in Christ. This idea of in Christ is the idea that you have a sphere. Okay? And think, remember, we t- I think we talked about last week the, two, the idea of two ages. You had the age that was dictated and ruled by the God of this world, small g, Satan. But you and I have been redeemed and rescued until the messianic age. All right? We are saved until the day of redemption. Well, this idea has to do with two spheres. When you are in Christ or in the Spirit, you are no longer in the world. Okay? So you're either in the world or you're in the spirit. You're either in the world or you're in Christ. It's called a dative of sphere. All right? And so we've been rescued by Christ into that, and these saints have it who are at Colossae. The other idea, too, here is grace and peace. Let me talk about those terms a little bit. Of course, grace, God's unmerited favor that he bestows upon the saints. But the idea of peace, I think this is a term that's abused a lot today. And it comes from the Greek Irenae. And Irene has the idea of shalom in Hebrew. Shalom, the idea of peace, is twofold. It first and foremost starts with God being in right relationship with him. The idea of Romans 5.1, that now we have peace with God 
through Jesus Christ, right? So that's where peace starts. Unless you have shalom, peace, irenae with God, you don't have peace. Okay, you don't have peace. And the world will say, peace, peace. Listen to what the Lord says in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 8, in Jeremiah chapter 7, he meets at the gate of the temple. And he is laying out a devastating case against the false prophets who are in Israel who are saying, hey, this Jeremiah is a liar. We're heading for prosperity. We're heading for peace. Okay? And so Jeremiah has to rebuke them and say, no, the Babylonians are coming. And it's all because you have made yourselves idolaters and have forsaken Yahweh. Listen to what Jeremiah says in chapter 8, verse 11. He says, they, talking about the false prophets and the false priests, he says, they have healed the wounds of my people lightly. I love that term, lightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Okay? I want you to think about today, we have a lot of people in heretical movements that are saying peace, peace, but they don't care about the peace with God. What they want is peace between neighbor, but they don't care about atonement. They want peace between countries, but they don't care about the wrath of God. These are false teachers. These are like the false prophets who long ago, who healed the wounds of the people lightly. You see the weightiness of that? See, true peace starts vertically with being in a right relationship with God. That's why Jesus says in Luke 12:51, do you think that I have come to bring peace to earth? No, I tell you, I've come to bring division. Okay? So those people who think that the role of Christ was to bring peace to the earth, yes, he will at his second coming, right? When he brings the kingdom, but that's not now. Now there's going to be division, okay? And specifically the division of those who receive Christ, in other words, receive the gospel, who actually repent and believe, and those who don't, all right? So the other piece, though, peace does have to do with... Uh, right relationship with neighbor. And so, again, this is this idea of loving the Lord our God with all our soul, all, all our might, and our minds, and also loving our neighbors ourselves. Okay, that's the idea of peace here. So, all right, now, let's keep going on here. Verses 3 through 5, Paul continues, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the, lo- the lo- I'm sorry, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. You know, I read this passage and I have to say I was rather confused by the NES a little bit when I read this. And I'll tell you why. Follow me through on this, on the logic here. It seems to me when I first read this that there are two reasons why Paul is thankful to God, the Father. First of all, it's since we heard of your faith and wrapped into that in your love. And it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Does anybody else, did anybody else read it that way when you first read it? Or does anybody see what I'm saying? So in other words, there's two reasons why Paul is thankful And one of the problems here in the NAS version, I think, is that they put this since in here. This since doesn't really belong. It's literally, it would be better translated, having heard. Okay, so think of it, praying always for you, having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So my point in saying this is that's causal, but I want you to realize that there's a distinction 
between the faith and the love and the hope. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay? But did anybody read it the way I read it initially, that there's two causes? Does anybody follow what I'm saying? Okay, well, I'll come back to it. Let's, let's leave it there for a minute. I want to talk about this idea of faith, love, and hope. This is a triad of descriptions of what a Christian is. There are those who have faith, those who have love, and those who have hope. And Paul, throughout his epistles, will always pick one, sometimes all three, like in Galatians 5, 1 Thessalonians, also Romans 1, 8. Sometimes he'll pick one, or he'll pick two, or all three. But these are always the reasons why Paul is thankful to God. Okay, so you'll see this common theme throughout his epistles. But now let me talk about this, this uh, phrase here, in Christ. Again, the sphere in which faith lives. Oh, you know what? This is where I want to talk about this idea of being in the sphere again. You know, years ago, I went to a, a program with the Navy where I was actually in junior ROTC, and I had to go to boot camp. And I was young. It was a real shock to me. And I remember it was uh, four in the morning. This is my first night there. I'm at Great Lakes, Illinois. I'm at Navy boot camps. Anybody been to Great Lakes, Illinois? Is your boot camp any Navy guys? Oh, Carl, I didn't know that. Well, you remember, it's, it's hot. It's horrible, right? It's miserable there. It's old, yep, stinky, just very Navy-like, right? Well, I remember my first, my first night there at four in the morning, the drill instructor, they call him, he was a, um, they don't call him that because he was actually a Navy guy. That would be a Marine but he was the commander. He ends up throwing a trash can down the barracks hallway. And the first thing that I thought of is, I'm in the Navy now. You know? It, it all of a sudden, I'm not in the sphere, again, of living in the civilian world. I'm in a different sphere. And again, that's the idea here of being in Christ Jesus. You guys are all now in the Navy now. You're in the Lord's Army now. That's the idea. Okay? And what that has to do with is not only are you eternally secure, which is a blessed thing, but now you're called to act differently. That's the idea wrapped into this being in the sphere of, okay? You're in the Lord's army now. You're, um, who is it that has the no spin zone? Is that Riley? O'Reilly? Bill O'Reilly? Yeah. This is the no sin zone, okay? Okay? Now, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Why? Because you're in the army now. You're in the army of the living God. That's the idea wrapped into being in the sphere of, all right? So again, I just want you to think of the weightiness of what's being said here. Now, here's the thing I want to get into with the structure of this passage, though. Notice Paul says, because of the hope uh, right here, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And I want you to realize that this because is actually the foundation or the basis of the faith and the love. Okay, so in other words, why is it that we have faith and we have love? Well, it's because of the promise or the hope that was laid up for us in the gospel. So this is actually causal. So what's really interesting to me is that I read it where you had two reasons why Paul's thankful. You had it for the faith and the love and then also the hope. But that's not what it's saying. This because is causal here. Okay, it's dia. And that is driving this whole passage. The reason why any of us have the love or our faith is because of the hope of eternal life. All right? That's the idea there. And notice, too, you guys, that it's laid up for us. Okay? So literally in the Greek, it's laid up presently. So think about the hope that we have is an eternal life, but the actual participle that's used here is in the present. 
So it's a future reward, but because it's in the present, it's yours now. It's yours now. And so the idea is, is you have access to it now. It's yours. And so because it's yours now, you're not going to lose it. It's, it's, it's a for sure thing. You see what I'm saying? It's so sure that you actually have it now. I think that's a beautiful thing. Oh, the idea previously heard. Do you notice where it says previously heard? I didn't underline that portion there. But where it says previously heard, that's actually, a, um, I think, a hint at the later heresy that the Colossians fell for. So they previously heard what? The word of truth. And that's juxtaposed to Colossians 2.8. If you look up Colossians 2.8, you'll see a phrase called kines uh, apates, which literally means deceitful words or empty deceit. Okay? So these people, these Colossians, they previously heard the word of truth, and that's juxtaposed to the heresy, the Colossian heresy, namely that you have to seek and invoke the protection of angels against these stoichia, that's empty deceit. That's vile. See, that's what Paul is saying here. Okay, So this teaching of the gospel, the word of truth, is juxtaposed to the empty deceit that we see come later in Colossians 2.8. Okay? And, oh, the last thing I want you to notice is, do you see where you see the word of truth in the gospel? That's called a, um, that's something in apposition. In other words, it's the word of truth... Namely, the gospel. That's the idea here. So they're really synonymous terms. Okay? Now, um, you guys, I think there's actually some practical implications to this passage. Let me show you what I, I think we learn here. First of all, what does this say about those who claim that we can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? Realize, friends, that it's because of our hope. The hope of the gospel is that we'll have eternal life, and it was promised before the foundation of the world, right? It was given to us in the gospel through the words of the living God. But this is actually what founds our hope. But there's people, I remember being in seminary when I would be in classrooms where the instructor himself would say, you know, I really don't like these Christians who are always focused on heaven. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that what Paul is calling us to be focused on? After all, the very faith in the love that the Christians had was founded upon the hope of eternal life. So if that's what's being stated in this passage, then they're not being accurate exegetes of the Scripture, and they're actually taking God's Word out of context, and therefore they're teaching something that's false. When they're saying, you can be so heavenly-minded, you're you're no earthly good. No, the opposite is true. You can be so unheavenly-minded that you're no earthly good, right? That's really the truth of it. If you don't ever think about heaven, if you don't have the promise of the gospel in your heart, you're not saved. And if you're not saved, you don't have the Holy Spirit working within you. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit working within you, you're in real trouble. Because I know who I was before the Holy Spirit came in. And I still, don't get me wrong, I'm still, you know, yes, I'm dead to sin, but every now and it comes back alive, right? And we're all that way. We're simultaneously justified, but yet we're still sinners, right, until the day of glory. So, yeah. That, that reminded me of something I heard at that conference I was at, that Jürgen Moltmann he denied that people will go to heaven when they die. And wow. Because he doesn't like separate spheres of anything. And so in the emergent, they consider going to heaven when you die an unworthy thing to even talk about. Wow. And so hearing him say that reminded me how many times I saw Brian McLaren and some of these others wow. mock evangelicals for 
preaching that people need to believe in Jesus so that they'll go to heaven when they die. It's yeah. not considered worth having even a thought about. Yeah, that's yeah. Wow. You know, that reminds me. I sat under a man named, um, oh, Glenn. While, while, you're, while Bob's getting over there, I'll just say, I sat under a man named Laron Schultz uh, at seminary, and he wrote a book that we had to all buy for our systematic theology course. In that, he denied the same thing that Bob talked about, namely that when you die, you have the separation of body and soul. Do you know what he cited as his evidence? It was a case in 1848 where a man named Phineas Gage was in a dynamite explosion, and he had shrapnel in his head, but he was the same person. So supposedly, that t- from him, that was evidence from the natural revelation that you could not have separation of body and soul, that they were so interlinked. Okay? Well, remember, that's a direct violation of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Right? Remember, Paul rejoiced in that, and he'd rather be with the Lord. But so, so think about it. These guys in these false movements, do they ever get into the scriptures and say, listen, these Christians for the ages, they've misinterpreted this passage. Let me show you the evidence. No, they merely assert what they believe to be true and they supply no exegetical evidence from the scriptures. It's proof because I say it. That's what these false teachers are doing. OK, yeah, yeah um, I've heard that phrase many, many times over the years, and it was always in an Arminian church which had everybody thinking it was a works righteousness. So it was like a lot of ex-Catholics in this church, and they were just changing terms and theology, but their walk was the same as Catholics, where you earned it through works. Wow. And I've never heard it said in a Calvinistic uh, yeah. uh, teacher. Yeah, well, that's that's good. And it's it's funny you say that because that's... You know, the idea of Calvinism is God doing for us what we can't do ourselves. And I shouldn't maybe use that term, but I still use the term Calvinism because I don't know what else to call it. I know, Bob, you had a different phrase that you it's called. It's a nickname. Yeah, it's a nickname, but it's... You talk about Reformed Soteriality. Okay, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, because people focus on the person of Calvin, then yeah. they assume that anybody going by that name must believe everything he taught or yeah. everything taught by those who are theological descendants, including infant baptism, uh, amillennialism, whatever yeah. Yeah. else is associated with it. And so when we talk about Reformed soteriology, then we're focusing on the doctrine of salvation yeah. and affirming that God is the one who saves us right. outside of our works. And when we talk about five points, my five points are not tulip. They are faith alone, grace alone, mm. Christ alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Okay, I like that. Amen. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's What's good. That? The solas. And the five solas were from Luther long before Calvin. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah that's right. He came so, before Calvin. So, we're, so then the focus is on the, the, the solas of the Reformation yeah. and not the person of John Calvin. I, I like that, yeah. So we don't get wrapped into all the teachings of Calvin. You know, talking about that idea of monergism, remember Paul... Um, or Bob, I should say, mentioned that last week. Monergism is the idea that God alone, mono, one, he is the one who's working for our salvation rather than a synergistic idea where we have to help God along. That really is another division between the Catholic understanding of the saints and our understanding of the saints. Again, saints are those who are elect by God, who are justified, who are one day going to be glorified, all because of God's doing. And the saints to a lot of the world, not even just in Catholic circles, are those who do good works, who are really just genuinely a good person. They're a saint. You know, that's in our common vernacular, isn't it? 
But that's not the biblical definition of a saint. That The biblical definition always gives glory to God more so than the definition uh, the world gives. Okay. Now, let me give you one other point here. What does this say about our gospel presentation? And I'm just saying, listen, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, again, your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints is because of the, it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Okay? That is causal. Oh, by the way, let me say this. This faith in Christ Jesus that you see up here, again, this faith, remember I talked about this being the sphere? This faith is a noun. If this faith was a verb, then this would be the object of the faith. Okay? So if anybody was confused by that the reason why this is not obviously christ is the object of faith don't get me wrong but that's not what's being stated here it's talking about the sphere idea why because this is a noun rather than a verb okay so if anybody was confused that's why okay but again paul is saying that the faith and the love its basis is the hope the hope of what well eternal life the promises that god made through abraham through isaac through jacob the the promise of the gospel and so what i'm just saying is when we give the gospel, yes, we have to convict people of their sins, and we talk about who Christ is and what he did. But wrapped in that, I think we have to be careful. We have to make sure people know what the redeemed and those who are saved are heading for. Okay, We have to spend time with people, sitting them down, and really laying out personal eschatology. In other words, what happens to us when we die? Body goes into the ground, soul goes to be with the Lord. Until when? Well, until the parousia, until the rapture when we're all caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then what happens? Well, then we have, you see, we need to lay it out for people. Now, they may not believe it. It sounds pretty fanciful, but it's part of the gospel. The good, realize, friends, this part of our life is very short. We may live 70, 80, 90 years, but we have eternity with the Lord reigning with him forever. That's pretty good news, isn't it? That's part of the good news of the gospel. So let's just make sure we put that in our gospel presentation. And by the way, I'm saying this. This cuts me too. I often, I'll give lip service to it, but I don't really explain it to those I'm discipling. And so when I read this passage, it got me a little bit. I said, you know what? I need to change the way I present the gospel. I need to be more intentional about explaining our eschatology when I sit down and disciple people. So anyway, any comments on that? Oh, gosh, I'm way behind. Sorry, (laughs) I thought any chimp could get through seven slides and look at me go, all right. Okay, again, this is the last part of the the previous verse. I just put it in there for context. Let me just read it again. Because of the hope laid up for you in the heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, and then Colossians 1.6 says, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even even as it has been doing in you, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. So think about this. You have two words, kathos, just as, okay, so the gospel came just as in all the world, it even has come to you. So the idea is the gospel came to you and it came to the rest of the world. And it's bearing fruit. And if it's bearing fruit, it's doing two things. I remember the parable of the um, sower, uh, Mark chapter 4, Luke chapter 8. Where, else, where is it in Matthew? Chapter 13, I think, somewhere in there. The idea of the parable of the sower is that, remember, the seed is the word of God. And it bears fruit in salvation, but also in deeds. Okay, that's the idea. Now, the first and foremost, it has to do with salvation. So what Paul is saying here is that this gospel, it brought salvation to those who are in the world, 
but it also changed them. But now it's brought salvation to you, you those in, Colossi, in Colossae, and now it's changing you. You're bearing fruit. That's the idea. Let me just talk about a few of these terms. Oh, somebody read for me. Lois, do you have a Bible? You don't have your Bible. That's all right. Um, let's see. Brian. I know Brian's name. Brian Beers? Yeah. Will you read Philippians 1.11? This talks about the good deeds of bearing fruit. And back up just a verse, actually. I think back up maybe verse 10. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Yeah, so wrapped into that idea of the fruits of righteousness is both the idea that you're saved. You're saved. You have the righteousness of Christ and you're completely atoned for. The wrath of God has been settled, but it's also the works that you're going to engage in now. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. By the way, what is that not of yourselves? It's both the grace and the faith. Okay, it's both. So the faith isn't even of you. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We get into verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? The purpose clause, for good works, which God created beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. So who is responsible for our fruits of righteousness, the, the deeds that we actually do? God is. And that's why it says in verse 11, to the praise of, uh, well, how did this go, Brian? For the, to the praise of God, right? To the glory and praise of God. That's how uh, Philippians 1.11 ends. Okay? Does that make sense? So who gets the glory for our good deeds? Well, God does. We didn't even do that. Okay? That's pretty neat, isn't it? All right. Now, the idea of being heard and understood. This has to do with salvation, hearing and understanding in a salvific way. Not just any general hearing. For instance, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel. Shema. Hear. Hear the words of the living God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, hear the words of the living God that you may what? That you may be his people, that you may be saved. If you don't hear in a saving way, then you won't be saved. So this idea of hearing is more than just the physical ability to perceive sound. It has to do with hearing in a salvific way. Somebody read for me. Gosh, I wish I knew names better. Anybody volunteer? Oh, thanks. Isaiah 6.10. And um, Carl, will you read Matthew 13.13? Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Wow. Um, think about what's being said there. Here these people are in idolatry. They've gone after gods. Gods that are so disgusting, their children are actually being sacrificed. And the word of the Lord says, cover their ears so they don't really hear. Cover their eyes so they don't really see. Their minds so they don't understand. That's powerful, isn't it? So who's in charge of... Yeah, Bob. That's known, by the way, as the judgment of reprobation. reprobation. Okay. And uh, let me explain how that works. Theologically, it's also taught in Romans chapter 1, okay? And what the judgment of reprobation is, is that when people refuse to listen to God, they rebel and won't listen to God's spokespersons and want to go their own way, God gives them over, okay? So they take the initial action of utter rebellion. Yeah, there's a chiastic structure in Romans 1 where it talks about they disapproved of God, so God disapproved of them. And so when God withdraws his restraining 
influence and gives them over. That's exactly what happens. Now, that Isaiah 6.10 is cited in several places in the New Testament as being what is happening in the time of Jesus when the Pharisees and rulers and what have you don't understand, don't hear, and won't. They're being put over to reprobation. That's right. And it's funny, we're being led or left over to our own devices, who we are by nature, which is namely wretched sinners who can't perceive and receive the things of God. Yeah, which is yeah. a very scary thing. It and is. All, that same thing in Romans 1 is called the wrath of God. Oh, yeah. So that sort of wrath is instead of God directly pouring out, let's say, hailstorms or plagues or whatever, like he eventually will in Revelation, yeah. his wrath is also expressed through reprobation by just letting us have what we want. And, and frankly, isn't that what's going on in America? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly just, right. Come, if the, the country says, we want sin, we want wickedness, we want yeah. this and that and the other things, so God is letting America have what they want, which is reprobation, which is just as yeah. scary. It's not, don't think that that's a good thing, that God lets you off the hook. <laughs> it's really bad because ultimately the direct wrath will be poured out as well. Yeah, amen. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Carl. You want to hit the uh, Matthew 13? Yeah, Matthew 13, 13, I guess. We'll just read that passage. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Yeah. yeah, so here's the idea again. They're not hearing. Just, that's just not the physical sense of hearing. It's the idea of hearing in a saving way. They won't hear. Why? Well, ultimately, it's because they're wretched sinners. Who's, who's ultimately responsible for that? They are. They're responsible for their sin. Now, who's responsible for getting them out of that condition so that they can perceive and receive the gospel? God alone. God alone. So who's responsible when you're saved? God alone. Okay, who's responsible? Who's the cause of your wretched sinfulness? You are. Okay, so just make, make sure we get that clear. All right, now, the understand, again, this is the idea of understanding in a saving way. Do you have that passage? Read two verses earlier, uh, 1311, Carl. It talks about this understanding. And he answered to them, To you it has been given to, you, given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To but know. to them it has, been, it has not been given. Yeah. There but to go. the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Yeah. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Yeah. So literally the unregenerate will be left with nothing on the eschatological day. They'll have nothing. They'll be in hell and torment. But the idea of to know, to you it has been given the right to know, and that's gnosko, knowing in an intellectual sense, not mystically, okay, a knowledge that is intellectual, but goes beyond the intellect into also affirmation and trust in what? Who G, and, and the object is who Jesus is and what he did. Okay? That's the gnosko. That's the kind of saving knowledge. So not just knowledge in general, but saving knowledge. And we see the same thing in 2 Timothy 2.25. Now, for the sake of time, let me move on here to the last verses here. Paul continues, says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is the faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Again, not just any love, but it's in the sphere of what? It's in the sphere of God. So it's not just the love of, um, you know, I love rock and roll or I love the Vikings. or I, It's not just any generic love, right? 
I love water skiing. It's in the love of the Spirit. It has to do with the things of God. Epaphras was the one who preached the gospel to them, if you recall. He was one of them, according to Colossians 4.12. It was him from, uh, which they, or from whom they heard the gospel. Okay, so this is a beloved, a beloved person. Okay, now let me uh, go on to some application. And I want to talk a little bit, first and foremost, about Paul's thankfulness and what it really means to us. And something that I thought is Paul is thankful, the very fact that he's thankful shows us that the Colossians were in fact regenerate. Okay, Paul is genuinely thankful that they're saved. Now that has implications to the rest of the book because that means... Paul isn't talking to unbelievers, and he's saying, hey, you're unbelievers, you've fallen for a false heresy. What he is actually doing is, he is he's going to be refuting the Colossian heresy to make sure that those who are saved don't fall into apostasy. All right. Now, remember our definition of election. God will keep us from the beginning to the end. Romans 8.30, for those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For them whom he justified, he also glorified. It's all done in the eyes of God. But God uses means. Okay, now what do I mean by that? Well, remember, the elect are saved completely by the work of God, but yet God uses means to do it. So that's why in Romans 10, Paul says, How will they hear unless someone preaches? How will they preach unless they are sent? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good tidings, right? Who bring the gospel message. So God uses means, but he also uses means to protect his people from error. And God's full expectation is that they will, in fact, respond to Paul's correction. Why? Because he's going to enable them to do so. Because they're his elect. Okay? And that's why we see, for instance, Hebrews 3.14, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, we see these exhortations by the word of God. Think about Hebrews 6. Um, Hebrews 6 talks about people who have fallen away, who can no longer be restored to repentance. But in verse 9 it says, We expect better things of you, brethren, things accompanying salvation. So what that means is that what was following, or what preceded that, the warnings, that, the warnings in Hebrews 6 are regarding those who are actually perishing. But God expects his elect, and they will. He will enable them to respond to the correction of the apostle and to therefore his word. You see what I'm saying? So they will respond to this uh, teaching, and they will, in fact, not be led away by apostasy. That's one implication through the rest of the book. The other thing is I think we should be thankful for the saints as well. And what I want to do is, um, we don't have time. I want to get into another passage in Romans. I might pick this up next week. Remember I said we, we can be kind of fluid. We don't have to finish every slide. I thought I'd be able to do it, but I'm inept, I guess. But I want to talk about a little bit further uh, this implication of being thankful for God's people because sometimes it's not easy. Why? Because we're not always very loving or lovable, I should say. Right Now, I'm not talking about you guys. You guys have been a great... Uh, congregation, but I'm saying I know myself, and I know I'm not always lovable, right? But what I'm going to do next week before we start into the next section is I want to talk about the glory of God because, friends, that is the pinnacle of the scriptures, the glory of God, and what I'm going to show you is that the saints bring him glory. So if you can't love the saints just because of who they are, even though we're commanded, remember Jesus commands us, I'll love one another. I give you a new commandment in John chapter 13. Remember, that's a commandment of the Lord. It's not an option. But sometimes it's difficult. And what I'm going to give you is that sometimes I remember if somebody's hard to love as a Christian, I love them because I know they're a vessel that's going to glorify God. We'll talk about that next time in Romans, and then we'll start the new section. So thanks, you guys, and we'll, um, I guess we'll eat goodies now. <laughs>